Our first reading this morning is from Joshua chapter 5. You can follow it in your Bibles or on the screen. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that had come out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the fourth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. And then we're going to turn to 1 Peter, chapter 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Let's pray, and if the words uh, sound a bit familiar, it's because we sang them earlier. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Lord, I pray that you'll use my words today, Father, that they might speak not from me, but from you. Amen. In case you hadn't noticed, yesterday was Australia Day, a day for, for reflection on and celebration of everything Australian, a day to be proud of who we are, a day to rejoice in everything we enjoy and normally take for granted. Of course, it can be a bit confusing when you try to flesh out the details of what all that means. Is it football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden carts? I count myself as a true blue, dinky-dye Aussie, but I'm not much into football, not fond of meat pies, and I drive an import. Spencer will be at least happy it isn't a Ford. I'm not sure about the kangaroos bit. Is it a re reference to the National League team? Or is it the furry animals that the Yanks believe should be hopping down the main street of every town? Or is it that pursuit of the uh, more rural pastime of kangaroo hunting? I've patted a few kangaroos at various nature reserves, just like any good Japanese tourist. But I have had a couple of close calls at dusk on country roads. Perhaps that's what it is. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's our proud history. We celebrate on the 26th of January because it's the day that Governor Philip, 225 years ago, founded the colony in Sydney. But our 21st century eyes are a bit uncomfortable with that. In fact, no one's mentioned that it was the 225th anniversary. Um, I worked that out last night. Um, because we aren't that comfortable with that because a bit uncomfortable because of the way the first Australians were dispossessed. And it seems to me, collectively, we haven't got a clue what to do about that discomfort. We're proud of the role that we've played on the world stage, a nation that punches above its weight. Proud of our defence forces and the role they've played in serving the cause of freedom around the world ever since Federation in 1901. We like to think that mateship is something uniquely Australian. We love the underdog appreciate the larrikin, admire good old Aussie ingenuity. We give everyone a fair go most of the time. We epitomise the classless society most of the time. We're always ready to rally round and give a hand to anyone who's down on our luck when it suits us. But let me give, leave the discussion of what it means to be an Australian for morning tea when I perfectly expect to be prescribed a good feed of lamb as a cure for my obvious case of lamnesia. Because today what I want us to look at 
is what God's word has to say about, to his people about what it means to be an Israelite and by extension to what it means to us as Christians to be God's people living in God's world. So let me take you on a journey back in time, beyond the distant past, way beyond the distant past, to a few years after the conquest of the Promised Land. And let's listen in as a young lad is talking to his granddad. Hey, granddad, can you tell me more about those big, smooth rocks over there? They're different from the other rocks around here. Dad says that they came from the middle of the river when we came into the Promised Land. Is that really what happened? Why don't we go and sit over there and sit down and I'll tell you about it. I was there, you know, just a bit older than you. All my life, we'd been moving from camp to camp in the desert. It was harvest time. The weather was warm and the snows were melting on the mountains up north of here. The grasslands on both sides of the Jordan were lush and green. I'd spent all my life up to then in the desert. And this new land looked like heaven to me. All of Israel was camped near the riverbank on the other side, just over there where Reuben and Gad keep their cattle now. Joshua was the new leader of the people because Moses, who'd led my dad and granddad out of slavery in Egypt, had just died. Maybe another day I should tell you some of the stories my granddad told me about that before he died. But what about the rocks, granddad? You were telling me about the rocks. Oh, sorry, was I? Oh, I remember. We were all excited. Joshua had told everyone to get ready to cross over into the promised land. I asked my daddy how we were going to cross the river. Of course, the river was running a banker, as it always does at that time of the year. But Dad just told me to shush. Between you and me, I think my dad was scared of me asking too many questions because everyone had said they'd do whatever Joshua had told them to do. But what's that got to do with getting rocks from the middle of the river, Grandad? I'm coming to that. Everyone had moved close to the river. There were people as far as the eyes could see, countless people, more than you'll ever see together nowadays. Joshua had told us all to get ready, to make ourselves right with God and to follow behind the Ark of the Covenant. It was up ahead. Then came the fighting men from Reuben and Gad because they'd got their land, but only the women and boys could stay over there. The rest of the men had promised to lead the fighting for the rest of Israel. Then the rest of us came. My mum and dad took me up near the front because they wanted me to have a good view. And I just couldn't believe it when I heard what Joshua was telling everyone. What couldn't you believe, Grandad? I thought you said Joshua was a good man. What did he say that was so bad? No, it wasn't wrong. It was just incredible. I'd never seen such a big river running at full force, almost bursting its banks. But Joshua said that as soon as the men carrying the ark put their, would put their feet in the water, the river was going to dry up. Now, my granddad told me that something like that had happened when they left Egypt with Pharaoh's armies at their, hot on their heels. But I thought he was pulling my leg. I couldn't believe that the mighty Jordan in flood could suddenly stop flowing. Did it, granddad? Did it really happen? How did we get across? 
Hold your donkeys, young man. I'm getting there. It was just like Joshua said. As the men carrying the ark got to the river, the water was right up to the very top of the bank. But the moment the first foot went to step off the bank, the water just seemed to get sucked away. It was incredible. Where moments before there'd been a raging flow, now there was dry land. The priests carried the ark into the middle of the riverbed and stood there while we all crossed to the other side. It took nearly a day for us to get across. I guess it must have been about five o'clock when the last of the people were safely across. And all that time, the riverbed was bone dry. But Grandad, you're supposed to be telling me about the rocks. You haven't said anything about them yet. Patience, we're just about to get there. When they'd all got across, Joshua got all the people together and in his big booming voice, he told each tribe to choose a big strong man to be their representative. Our tribe picked my friend Daniel's dad. We all wondered what Joshua wanted them for, but we soon found out. Joshua told them to go back across to the middle of the riverbed, to the place where the priests were still holding the ark, and to pick up a big stone from the middle and bring it over here. So they are these rocks, Grandad. Did old Daniel's dad bring one of these rocks? That's right, my boy. That one over there is the one Daniel's dad carried out of the river. So why do you take me so long to tell me, Grandad? Why didn't you just say Daniel's dad and a few other guys put them there? Ah, but that would be to miss the point. The rocks are here for a purpose. They're here to help us remember. That's what Joshua told us that evening. He told us that the stones were to be a sign, a memorial for us. He said we were to tell this story whenever our children asked about the rocks. You need to promise me that you'll remember to tell your children and your grandchildren about it when they ask about these stones, to remind them that God stopped the floodwaters of the Jordan so that we could cross into this land. So, Grandad, does that mean that we're a really special people? Is that why no one can mess with us? What do you mean, my boy? Well, if God's given us this land and will even stop rivers for us, doesn't that mean that we must be the best people? It's a good question, isn't it? We look back on our history as a nation, or even our history as a congregation here in Cherrybrook, we see the blessings God has showered on us, and we pat ourselves on the back as citizens of God's own country. You see, the story as told by our grandfather could easily lead us to three headlines. A great people, a great leader, with great freedom. From time to time, we might even think the same about our own land, depending on our politics and who won the last election. But what does God's word have to say about these things for the people of Israel as they enter the promised land? And by extension, what's it saying to us, God's people, today? First, let's think about the great people, God's chosen people, his special possession, 
his royal priesthood. Their reputation went before them. This was a special people, invincible, with a God who fought for them. In Joshua 2, we hear their reputation from the prostitute Rahab in Jericho. She'd knowingly taken in two Israeli spies. She's hidden them from the king when their presence became known. And she explains why when she begs them to spare the lives of her family. I know, she says, that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Even before the Jordan had been crossed, she knows that resistance is futile. And after the crossing, well, it suddenly became very real, very immediate. As we read at the beginning of Joshua 5, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. When you're facing the people of Israel, you're dealing with the God of heaven and earth. And it's true. They were a special people. The words Peter uses to describe us accurately describe the people of Israel too. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But Joshua 5 is about putting this in perspective, seeing the picture correctly and in focus, not letting the action and the drama distract us from what's really going on here. How do the people of God celebrate the glorious entry into the promised land? What's the first order of business now they've established a foothold on the land God is giving them? The first order of business isn't celebration. It's dealing with some unpleasant, unfinished business. God has been faithful to his promise. He's kept his word. None of those who were of military age when they had left Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb, remained alive, just as God had promised. But the children of the promise, those born in the desert, those who'd crossed the Red Sea, those who hadn't crossed the Red Sea, had crossed the Jordan instead and were now in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, just as God had solemnly promised. He'd kept his word, but they hadn't. Remember where the promise in the promised land comes from. It's God's promise to Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. 
I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God, to be the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you're now an alien, I will give to you as an everlasting possession, to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who was eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. But you see, no one had been circumcised on the way. Not one of them met the condition for membership of God's people. In fact, Exodus is pretty silent about circumcision. Clearly, God's people knew that it was God's covenant requirement. We know they knew about it. Exodus 12, where God sets out the requirements for observing the Passover, is clear. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native-born and to the alien living among you. But they didn't do it. A whole generation was uncircumcised. God calls his people to account for this when they enter the promised land, after they cross the Jordan. That's significant. You see, God saves the unrighteous. He brings those who have not kept even the straightforward, simple, symbolic part of his covenant into his kingdom, his promised home, his fulfilment of his promise. Here again, we see that God's chosen people are not chosen on the basis of their merit, their righteousness, their fulfilment of God's selection criteria. They are special only because God has chosen, despite their sin, despite their rebellion, despite their unworthiness, to make them his own. He shows his might and his power. He astonishes the outside world with the trifling miracle of stopping a river from flowing, but then turns immediately to deal with more important things than wiping up a bit of water in a river, to the more important issue of wiping away the reproach of the clear disobedience of his people. Everyone is circumcised. Everyone has a painful reminder of the fact that they were the unworthy recipients of God's grace. And then, at last, they can celebrate the first Passover in the land of the promise, celebrating the transition from desert wanderers to those who live in the land, but not quite yet possessing the land, from being nourished by the manna and the quail to eating the greater delights of the fruit of the promised land. 
Isn't that our story as Christians? God's people, but without anything to boast in, other than the unmerited love of God that, is, that God is showering on us despite our unworthiness. And we too live in the promised land of God's grace, clothed in all the riches of his mercy and love and secure in our possession of all that God has promised us, living in the presence of God but desiring the completer revelation of that reality that will only come with the return of Jesus at the end of the age. No, we aren't a great people with the spotlight of merit shining brilliantly on us. No, rather, we're the people of the great God. And so if the great people needs to be replaced by people of the great God, what about the great leader? Ah, what it must have been like to have a leader like Joshua, God's own man, strong, brave, courageous, a direct line to God, hearing his word clearly and steadfastly committed to carrying out God's will. We'll be really happy with James if he comes close to matching that description. Joshua, a man with God clearly on his side. That's certainly what the people of Jericho thought, along with the Amorite kings and the kings of Canaan. I'm sure it's what the people of Israel thought, and I suspect it's what Joshua thought, because that's the very next thing that God deals with. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? See, there are only two choices. Either you're for us or against us. You're either on my side. I don't know about you, but what I'm hoping to hear when I see someone with a drawn sword standing in the path that I'm about to take is that he's on my side. Or you aren't. In which case, I'd need to consider what I'm going to do about that. Draw my sword and prepare to fight or notice that I came rather unprepared for battle and withdraw uh, before the drawn sword makes unwelcome contact with my skin and bones. I really doubt that it crossed Joshua's mind that the man might be a neutral UN peacekeeper. The armed man was, the man was armed and ready, either an unexpected friend or an unwelcome foe. But the answer Joshua receives cuts us all down to sides, doesn't it? It's totally unexpected. There are only two alternatives, but the answer is neither, literally. And that's the least surprising part of the answer because the man wielding the sword goes on to say, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. God's on our side? No, Joshua. No, people of Cherrybrook. It's not true. It's so far from true that it's not even the right question. The answer brings us sharply down to earth and lifts our eyes firmly to the heavens. You see, Joshua let himself think that it was about us and them when it's really all about God. The question isn't whether or not God's on our side. It's whether or not we're on God's side. Do you realise what that means? Do you see how a proper understanding of the correct question to be asking changes just about everything 
as we face the circumstances of life. For Joshua, it must have changed the internal questions from, will God help me take the city of Jericho? Will he help me to lead this people in the conquest of the land? To questions that were directed as to how he could be faithful to God as God used him to accomplish God's purposes. Have we taken that to heart? I think about my own prayers with a certain amount of dismay. So often my prayers are concerned with the achievement and bringing about of my purposes, the prevention of some impending disaster facing me or those I love, the fulfilment of some deep desire of my heart or a plea to be relieved of something unpleasant and distressing that's come across my way. It really shouldn't be so. If we're living as people who are on God's side, our desires will focus around serving and glorifying him. Or as everyone who'd been at NTE this year and heard William Taylor speak, kept reminding us from his talks, we'll focus on maximising the master's assets. Joshua 5 recasts the leadership question for them and us question. The question isn't whether God is on our side, whether or not God supports our leaders. The only question is whether or not we're on God's side, serving his purposes and following his commands and directions. Thus far, we've seen that we need to replace a great people by the people of the great God, a great leader with God, the great leader. So what about the celebration of great freedom? The early part of Joshua talks about that too. We haven't read about it this morning, but you're probably familiar with the story. When the walls of Jericho fall in chapter 6, God's clear instruction is that the people are to take nothing for themselves. Everything is to be either destroyed or added to the treasury of the Lord's house. Only Rahab and her family are to be spared. But we're God's people, aren't we? He's been so good to us. He's shown mercy to us even though we were undeserving. He loves us. Surely it won't matter if I, especially if I'm discreet about it and no one finds out. God set us free. And what's freedom if we can't use it to follow our heart's desire? Achan obviously thought so. He saw some precious things among the ruins in Jericho and buried them out of sight in a hole in the ground inside his tent. No one knew. No harm was done. No one could suffer any harm as a consequence. It was a victimless crime, insignificant, of no importance. But was it? Someone knew. God knew. Great harm was done. 36 people died as a consequence of Achan's action when God gave his people into the hands of their enemies because of the evil they harboured amongst them. I don't know about you, but I find myself a lot like Achan. It's easy for me to resist temptation to do the things that would give me a public reputation as an evil man. I haven't come close to robbing a bank, to murder, to engaging in drug trafficking, or anything else that might put me on the front page of the Herald. But the subtler temptations, to reach out and grab the seemingly good thing that God hasn't given me, well, that's something I continue to struggle with. 
the careful choice of words to give a distorted impression of reality when I'm asked a question rather than giving a straight answer. The things that I'll contemplate doing when no one is looking that I'd never dream of doing if someone else was around. The evasiveness of those last two sentences that tell you everything and say nothing. What's it saying about me? My efforts to skew things to suit me and my interests are saying that I don't trust God's promises to work for the good for all those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Isn't it saying that it's man's approval that I'm seeking and that I'm entirely happy to disregard God's view, to act as if he wasn't there, to behave as if offending him was of no account? After the fall of Jericho, the people of Israel were clearly shown that the freedom they enjoyed in the land of the promise was not a license to live to please themselves. Achan chose the path of serving himself, gratifying his own desires, snatching for himself the desirable thing that God had said was not his to possess. Confronted with the choice between following God and following his own instincts and desires, he chose to sin against the Lord, the God of Israel, without recognising that he was doing so at the cost of his life and that of many of his fellow Israelites. The sad thing is that the very thing Achan took by force was something that God was happy to provide for his people once they'd discovered that serving and pleasing God was more precious than the possession of gold and silver. While God had reserved for himself all the treasure of Jericho, at Ai, the very next town they conquered, he gave every good thing into the hands of his people and continued to do so throughout the conquest of Israel. It was a lesson that the people then took to heart. Thirty years later, we see at the end of the book of Jericho that the people of Israel were prepared to engage in civil war rather than to incur the wrath of God by harbouring evil amongst them because they remembered what God had done when Achan remained among them. You see, the Israelites in the promised land and we as Christians enjoy more than freedom. We enjoy freedom with purpose, to glorify God, to serve his kingdom and to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. God calls us to enjoy that freedom by obeying his call and leaving the darkness and living in his wonderful light. So this morning, let me leave you by reminding you of the three ways in which we fleshed out some of our identity as God's children. Firstly, we're not a great people. No, we're the people of the great God. Secondly, We're not followers of great leaders with God on their side. Rather, we're followers of God, our great leader. And finally, we enjoy complete freedom to glorify God, to serve him and to declare his praises as we enjoy enjoy to the full the many rich blessings he chooses to give us. I'm very conscious of the fact that up till now, I've mentioned the name of Jesus exactly once. So let me back right up to my introduction 
about what it means to be an Australian. If only to show you that Jesus is really there, as the solicitor in that great movie, The Castle, put it so inelegantly, there in the vibe of everything we've been thinking about. You see, in those terrible ads that we've come to hate, Sam Kekovich is exactly right. The correct diagnosis for what happens when we question our true identity is lamnesia. And the only cure for it is more lamb, partaking more fully in the lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour and our King, to whom we belong, who calls us to serve his purposes and who is the only source of true freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in these past days we've been celebrating the many blessings you've given us. We've rejoiced in the beauty, the bounty, the wonder of this great land in which you've placed us. We've expressed our gratitude for the wisdom and good government of those who you've placed in leadership in this country throughout its history. And we've reflected on the great blessing of the freedom to live with confidence in peace and security that you've been pleased to bless us with. Help us to respond appropriately to these, your blessings. Help us to focus our love and appreciation on you, the giver, rather than on them, the gift. Help us to have a right view of ourselves and you, so that as we partake of the blessings you've given us and find fulfilment and joy in serving and obeying you, so that we may fulfil your purposes by declaring your glory to everyone around us and in so doing, reveal to the world what it means to live in your wonderful light. Amen. If we understand who we are, there can be only one response. Won't you join with me in singing our final hymn, Hear the Call of the Kingdom. <laughs>